0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye.
1: If you're looking for information about the history of public education in the United States and why we generally have the right to a public education everywhere here, one place you'll not find the answer is in the Constitution. Nothing in that document mentions education, and nothing in the Bill of Rights guarantees any of us or any of our children the right to a free education. Of course, the Bill of Rights doesn't really compel the government to do anything. It's uh, not positive rights. These are negative rights in that it, the Constitution tells the government what it can't do to us. Nothing there mentions education. Although you could say that the First Amendment implies that teaching can go on if I have freedom of speech, and uh, the Tenth Amendment uh, probably uh, says that it's a not a federal issue because it's not mentioned in the Constitution, therefore it's a power of the state to provide education if it wishes. We happen to be in a country now where 50 of those states do provide a public education. But they are the jurisdiction, the state's run education generally, although the federal government does provide funding, and with that funding comes some power and some say, as we've seen in some legislation. Joanna Holshouser writes, have you ever done a show on the public education system in America? Why do we have a public school system? Why is it funded the way that it is? Well, thanks, Joanna. I think, uh, It may take some time to do a complete podcast on the public education system in America. But it is an interesting question, because education is something that most Americans, regardless of ideology, agree on as a concept. It's not true of everything. They agree on as a concept that children should be educated and that it's important. They do disagree on how to do it how much funding to provide, whether the funding should be in the form of a voucher, how many teachers to hire, what teachers should be paid, how many school buildings to have, who runs the educational system, whether the federal government should be involved at all. Those are areas of disagreement. But the overall concept that we have to provide an educational opportunity as best we can is nearly a universal ideology. I'd look at a couple of things in a way of answering your question our Protestant heritage, generally Protestant heritage, the example of Europe, a couple of well-known American leaders, and an evolution from privilege to equality of opportunity. The one thing I've noticed looking at uh, all of this is that education was always fairly popular in America. I think we start with the Lutherans and Calvinists Both of those leaders, John Calvin and Martin Luther, supported education. These reformers insisted that if education was given to the average people, they wouldn't have to just simply listen to the clergy, and they could read the Scripture. Every person must be able to read the Scripture on their own and understand it on their own, and not have a priest tell them what the Scripture means. Therefore, it's definitely the case that Scotch and Dutch and Calvinist Puritans Those settlers to America tended to form schools faster, and the schools developed faster in those areas. We were an Enlightenment country, born at the tail end of the Enlightenment. It had already gone on for over a hundred years. We were a kind of experiment to try all these ideas that philosophers in Europe had been talking about. The Enlightenment valued reason, and there could be no reason without education. Man could not stand on his own. If we had no education, we would be the servant of kings or other people who were telling us what to do. Education was highly valued by Rousseau, Locke, Adam Smith, John Locke, considered the mind to be a blank slate and a child's mind, the best for education. And therefore, it was imperative that we get as much into that child as possible, that we instruct, instruct, instruct from the Latin for filling in, that we fill in these minds. You see, in England in the late 1600s, as America's being settled, there's a movement for schools for the poor, charity schools, with a religious element, of course. These were not state-sponsored. In 1700, you had about 100 of these schools in England. We're 76 years from our independence, and you've already got a blossoming you know, free school, at least a charity school movement in England. Principally around London, but in other areas of the country as well. Missionaries from England actually came over and founded the Trinity School in New York in 1709, near where Trinity Church is, near Wall Street today. And Pennsylvania schools were also formed. Puritans in Massachusetts formed a Boston Latin School 15 years after the Plymouth Landing. As soon as they could, colonies were building schools. 18 years after Plymouth, John Harvard bequeathed an estate for a college. Now, this wasn't a school for children, but it was a magnificent educational center. And it showed the values of those early Americans. Puritans believed strongly in education. For the most part, these Puritans could read and write. England was actually sending over some of its brightest people because the Puritans were among the educated. And that's why they rejected, one of the reasons they rejected the doctrines of the Anglican Church. And they came over here. So education was unnatural for them. And they tended to, faster than other people, support an education that was provided by the state versus any church. While America was principally settled by Protestants, how serious common education was treated depended somewhat on what type of Protestant religion a person was or was strong in an area, the area settled by reformed Dutch scotch Presbyterian Calvinists Puritans they tended to be supportive of common education in the South, which was principally the Anglican Church, the Church of England there wasn't such a natural inclination to form common schools in fact, in Virginia, Governor Berkeley in sixteen sixty said, looking at the schools that were developing in England at the time, that he hoped that no common education, none of these free schools, would open up in Virginia. It would only lead to heresy, he said. Yet in 1692, Virginia formed the College of William and Mary, a respected educational center, and localities and counties did form schools, but most of these schools were where the gentry would send their children. And they were supported, not by taxpayer dollars, but by tuition. For the poor, there was apprenticeships or tobacco farming apprenticeships. The taxpayers didn't pay for most of the secondary schools that existed in, the, in Virginia or most of the southern colonies. A tuition fee would be paid, tuition from the Latin tuere, to protect, to guard. Gentlemen paid for their sons to be sent away and be protected. During the day at least, where a formal school was not available, plantation field schools were formed. These would usually involve volunteer teachers. One of the various, you know, plantation owners, where there'd be some kind of rotation, would teach various subjects that they could. Uh, these were also supported by donations. So in one plantation, they might donate the uh, a house in order to conduct the school classes in and also by tuition from those who were sending their kids to the plantation school. It was another governor of Virginia who proposed a statewide education system. Thomas Jefferson's plan had four parts, and only a small part depended on taxpayers. Every town would be forced by the state to build a school. Everyone could go, but they, uh, the, the taxpayers, would only pay for three years of elementary school. You could send your kid for more, but you had to pay a tuition. The best of these students would be selected to go to the county secondary or high school, where a high school would be built in each county, and they would go to the county secondary school for two years. Again, taxpayers supported, just for those who were the best of the elementary school. The best of these students would go for three more years and focus more on their education so it's almost like you know playing some kind of game show here where at each step as a child you can be sent out of school if you don't earn your way up the best of the high school students who got those additional 3 years would be sent to college 20 students half of them would be totally taxpayer supported so they could just focus on educational pursuits the other half would have to teach in the various secondary schools in order to fund they're going to college. This is a way that they'd get teachers for the secondary school in in Jefferson's plan. Now, Jefferson's plan is is very idealistic, especially for the time, but it's conservative in its approach if we look at it from today's educational system. Unfortunately, despite how conservative it might have been, how it appears to us now, It was never passed by the state and was considered radical for its time, and Virginia, anyway, during Jefferson's term as governor, was busy with the Revolution, and British troops were all over the state. His bill did not pass, and steps to introduce public education to Virginia would be fairly slow. In 1796, Virginia allowed towns to tax and build a school system if they wanted to, and a few did. It was only in 1810 when Virginia established a state scholarship fund to help support schools and education. And still, we were a long way from a public education for everyone. That would not reach Virginia until 1870. And even then, not necessarily funded. So if you look at that, these were baby steps. But in the most conservative state in America, or one of the most conservative states it demonstrates that education was worthy of some attention and some funding and some planning, even if it was only for the most meritorious or the most wealthy. It was evolving to getting more than just the kids of the wealthy into the education system in some way, and it was a concern. Jefferson felt that it was the job of government to identify the bright spots, even if some of those bright spots were mired in poverty. It's the job of government to find that and bring it out. Education, the word E coming from out, X or E, out, and ducate, to lead, from the Latin word for lead. We see that in the, the root of the word duke. So Jefferson was a, really a believer in that word, education, bringing the best out, leading the best out of the students. In Massachusetts, the story was different. Common schools for the education of children was more common like the model of Europe. However, you're still talking about in Massachusetts no universal education at the time of the Declaration of Independence. It's not until the 1820s when Massachusetts really became an educational model for the nation. In 1821, a public high school anyone can go to opens up in Boston. In 1827, under the leadership of Horace Mann, who would become superintendent of Massachusetts school and become a vice presidential candidate for the Free Soil Party in the 1850s. In 1827, under his leadership, the state legislature required that every town in Massachusetts of more than 500 persons build a school and allow anyone from that town to attend. Now, that was a pretty big leap for American education, but still, you had a problem. Even though anyone could attend free to these schools, You had a lot of parents who couldn't afford to have their kids doing anything else but working at this time. So it was not until the 1850s when Massachusetts would enact the nation's first compulsory education law, compulsory attendance to school. Every parent had to send their children to school. That's the 1850s before the Civil War. It would become a model for the nation, but you still had the case where by 1885, only 16 states had the same law as Massachusetts, compulsory attendance. Goes to show you how incremental public education was in the United States. In 1867, after the Civil War, during the Johnson administration, a federal Department of Education was created to support educational efforts. Dr. Barnard, who headed up that effort, was the superintendent of schools in both Connecticut and Rhode Island, was a leader in education. Northerners, particularly the Whig Party, supported education. They tended to want to make citizens, better citizens, better members of a democracy by being educated. In terms of a moment when SNAP, you know, the volunteer and charity and tuition-based schools turned into full state-supported schools, public education for everyone, I think this just doesn't happen in American history. You're talking about different times in different places. It's a local issue, it still is today, a state issue, and it differed from place to place. But the median is probably around the 1850s, 1860s, for the development of education, and the 1880s to the turn of the century for fully funded universal education. The Civil War makes a nice marker in this. You think about after the Civil War is when most states started to adopt free education systems. It varied from place to place. Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania were among the leaders. There was public education available in New Jersey, free public education by 1860. Uh, in New York, 1867, free public education in New York. It was earlier in some places and earlier in New York City. Pennsylvania did not have full and free education, a statewide system till 1854. In some of the frontiers where they were principally settled by uh, northerners, uh, say, uh, Indiana, Ohio, you had uh, mandatory education laws early in the 1850s. Michigan, again, one of the northwest states settled by a, a lot of people from New England, from its start in 1837 had a provision in its constitution that towns could develop local taxes to support a school, and that the state would have a a school scholarship fund. Border states, Maryland, Kentucky, West Virginia, these states got uh, full education about 1865 after the war. In the South, progress was slower. You may or may not have had a school in your area depending on where you were how close you were to the coast or a major city. Charleston, for instance, had a school system in 1856. Georgia and North Carolina were organizing school systems as the Civil War started, and North Carolina continued throughout the war. Reconstruction governments after the war established universal education, and in many cases, generous funding for it was appropriated. These were very liberal legislatures at this time, and governors who generally were people from the north, maybe former union soldiers or businessmen in the north who came down south and acquired political power. Tennessee had a universal education law in 1867, Virginia and Georgia in 1870. Yet taxes to fund these schools that were so generously appropriated in the law in the state capital, were not always being collected. These governments didn't always have power in order to enforce the laws they passed. And so there was laws in the books for universal education, but some of the schools and teachers were not appearing. It was a Massachusetts man, George Peabody, who in 1867 gave $2 million of his own money to the South, a gift from the Union to the Suffering South, he called it. It was not enough, of course, even though $2 million was an awful lot of money in 1867. It was not enough to build a, schools all over the South. But he did send Peabody teachers and uh, Peabody carpenters and built schools and, and finance teachers. And uh, as he hoped, it was a bit of an example for others, and $10 million more million were granted by other donors to the South to build educational systems. Still, despite these generous donations, complete systems of education in the South were not available everywhere until the turn of the century. It's interesting, the question, uh, thank you, Joanna, and it's interesting to look at the educational issue because, again, I do believe it's an issue where there's agreement in America. We generally uh, like things that involve opportunity on all sides of the political spectrum. We're certainly going to have differences on how we fund everything. But that's also true in America's history. It does appear to me, with a relatively quick review of the history of American public education, that as soon as places had money to fund it, education was one of the first things they funded. Maybe first would be national defense, protection. Maybe second would be infrastructure, roads and transportation, canals and the like. And the third being education, skills for the schools for the children. It was seen as a moral good, it was seen as a government imperative, it was seen as something that society had to do to stay competitive. A little bit different in other areas, and you certainly had opponents of public education everywhere that laws were being passed uh, during all these times. But for the most part, as Americans, we see the issue as you've got to at least provide the opportunity for children to have a chance to succeed, and then once they're adults, they're on their own. It's very different from other issues, say, like uh, healthcare, for instance. We need healthcare all throughout our lives. We probably should need education. I obviously do this podcast, and I hope people read a lot of books on their own, maybe pursue graduate studies or any kind of studies and the like. But we don't need education necessarily beyond, or uh, the government doesn't need to be financing education beyond childhood and adolescence. So it's a temporary need. And Americans far prefer to fund specific situations for specific individuals who can't fund it for themselves. And Americans prefer temporary you know, programs work better when it's a temporary uh, need. And that's why education seems to be valued higher than, say, an issue like health care. Governor Jefferson proposed something for education, you know, and. 1779 today politicians are always trying to associate themselves with education be they democrats which is a major issue of the democratic party and teacher unions certainly overwhelmingly support democrats and not all individual teachers but most teachers when polled do and republican presidents still don't push the issue aside just because most teachers are and the union are supporting democrats republican presidents both Uh, President Bush's, for instance, made education part of their their programs. Everyone wants to be associated with education, with our children, and our future. John Francis Marion writes, In regards to the should-have-been-prez cast, the people who should have run for president, I'd agree with uh, your choice of Stephen Douglas. And from your argument, Bruce, I'd agree with uh, President Franklin as well, that uh, he should have been president. I'd also add William Jennings Bryan. What was with his absence, Bruce? I I would rather have him than the imperialist Roosevelt or Wilson. So writes John Francis Marion. Thanks very much. Okay, uh, first, as a student of history, who wouldn't want to have seen a President William Jennings Bryan? What an exciting time. It would have made things right there at the turn of the century instead of having the kind of businessman's president, uh, William McKinley. You had William Jennings Bryan. But I, despite that you know, need for a little excitement, uh, I think that he might have been bogged down by the Senate. He might have gotten to Washington and fought and nothing ever would have been done. I'm not sure even if he was able to achieve election that he would have gotten enough senators in on his coattails and enough House members in on his coattails in order to enact what he needed to do. The economy did recover under McKinley. So in that way, it's hard to argue for a different president. Maybe some of his ideas might have made the market afraid, might have caused inflation. He was an inflationary porter. He wanted a government department of money, uh, which essentially means, and we have sort of have that through the Fed, but not exactly. There would be an actual government-controlled bank, and it would lend money, particularly to farmers, in order to get the equipment they needed to build their farms. And it's all well and good except that, uh, as we can see, if lending is in the hands completely of the politicians, I think they're always going to go for more lending and more credit, and you might see financial disasters from that. So I'm not sure it was a well-thought-out plan, but sometimes, particularly when we have the most restrictive periods of the Fed, we're not seeing that exactly now, when banks aren't lending any money, Brian's idea of a department of money, I suppose, has a lot of uh, support. I see Brian as a redder and a good one. I think he would have been a president like a Reagan or an FDR where, uh, you know, you'd get, or or Teddy Roosevelt, where you get great quotes in the newspaper. Reporters loved Brian. One of the reasons he was the candidate not only in 1896, but also in 1900 and then again in 1908, and even made attempts at it in 1912 and 1924, reporters loved him. And if you put Brian on the ticket, you got quotes. You know, and don't forget, even in 1924, his brother was made the uh, vice presidential candidate. So he had a lot of influence in the Democratic Party for that reason. As secretary of state, Bryan did actually get the opportunity to lead a significant department in American government, though he's not president. And he executed Wilson's policy, though I do believe for the most part he agreed with Wilson's approach. Um... He was certainly not as aggressive as Teddy Roosevelt, say, would have been. You referenced Teddy Roosevelt and his imperialist uh, leanings. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted uh, Wilson to go in there and just savage Mexico and the Huerta government that had insulted us. Uh, we had a much more hands-off approach, even though we did end up sending some soldiers in there. You know, so we were a little bit more laid back in foreign policy, but there's the example of Haiti, for instance, where we went in and overturned the government. And this was done under Brian's control and under Wilson's control, and led many to conclude, progressives and anti-imperialists, that things were no different under Brian than they had been in, under any other, you know, American president. Now, Brian did disagree with the Wilson administration over the reaction to Europe, and when he felt that Wilson was leading things to war, he got out as Secretary of State. Wilson would avoid war for four years. They'd let he'd let europe fight for four years before america declared war so he didn't exactly rush to war the way you know teddy roosevelt probably would have it is true that brian was an anti-imperialist in the 1900 election it was one of the big issues it got brian a support of you know mark twain uh, andrew carnegie and some significant anti-imperialists that thought that mckinley was leading the country to uh, war with all these other nations And uh, leading, you know, us into the same pattern as the European colonial powers. But there's two things about that. One is that the U.S. was not as imperialist as other nations at the time. If you look at us compared to France, Germany, or Great Britain, it may well be that we got into the game late and that we were only able to take the Empire of Spain, which was kind of a receding world power at that time. So we only had a limited amount of overseas possessions. But... Our mark on the world was small at a time when other nations owned significant amount of territory outside their borders. And the entire continent of Africa, for instance, was carved up by various European powers. And the United States was not involved in that. We did have some Pacific uh, possessions. And another point is that Brian may have been anti-imperialist, but he was partially responsible for the Spanish-American War among many, many other factors. He wasn't the only factor, because he advocated for the U.S. to get involved on behalf of the Cuban rebels against Spain. Now, he didn't want us to take over Cuba, and we didn't end up taking over Cuba, though we sort of did uh, give them their independence in name only. But uh, he wanted us to support the rebels against Spain, and his call for that was one of many factors weighing on McKinley's mind. I mean, Bryan was the guy that he had run against in 1896. All indications were that Bryan was going to be his next opponent for re-election. So it certainly weighed on McKinley's mind in terms of whether to go to war or not, which is an issue that had divided the Republican Party and divided the country in some respect. So Bryan, yes, anti-imperialist, yes. Anti-interventionist, no. And so I think for those reasons, uh, we wouldn't exactly get a pacifist uh, president in, in William Jennings Bryan. I wouldn't say that he absolutely should not have been president. He just wasn't a no-brainer for me when I did this list of, of should have been presidents. I, I, I saw people who, who probably had some merit, and so I didn't include him on that list. I, I just get the sense that he was more of, of a candidate than a governor. Brennan Hurt writes, I'm interested in Republican plans to repeal health care. Have there been repeals of sweeping legislations in the past? Well, thanks, Brennan, for the question. Uh, There's two key examples of where it didn't happen with sweeping legislation. We can look at one is that Eisenhower made clear only the most aggressive New Deal programs would be opposed or repealed. Social Security, for instance was not one of them. I mean, he, would, uh, he told his brother that uh, he would be foolish to overturn something like Social Security that was well established and people were depending on. The FDIC, the SEC, things like that did not reach Eisenhower's red pen. Now, He was against certain things like uh, the government providing mortgages for people or the government providing jobs like the WPA, but those programs had been eased back by the time Eisenhower took office anyway. And so the New Deal programs that were left, Eisenhower didn't make an effort to repeal. In fact, when there was an economic recession in 1954, uh, Eisenhower suggested that uh, we might have to develop a public works program. Uh, the other example would be that Nixon made no attempt to repeal Medicare. Although uh, it had taken time to get off the ground, millions of members were now part of Medicare, millions of seniors who vote. And it would have been a little ugly to uh, repeal it at that time. Besides, Nixon didn't have enough Republicans in the House to make it happen. And But even if he tried to get conservative Democrats, some of whom were really itching to cut down the, the size of the federal government, He admitted years later that he was a liberal on health care. Nixon had no interest in in, uh, repealing that that program. Yet, Social Security and Medicare were sweeping bills with popular support. This is a little different because of the way the health care reform debate was conducted this year and the way that bill was processed and the opinions of it. It makes it very different from those giant bills. I would argue that Obama's health care reform is not presented in the same way as these other programs. I'm not sure that all Americans see the clear benefits. They see lots of little things, uh, some good things. The elimination of denial of coverage for pre-existing conditions—that's huge. Uh, extension of care for you know, 26-year-olds or up to 26-year-olds uh, who are on their parents' plans. That's. Uh, these are all things that rate very highly. But it's kind of mixed and jumbled with the overriding popular view of, uh, of this health care reform right now. Either someone's you know, coming more from a Republican point of view and rejecting it as kind of an Obamacare, and it's just the big government involved in health care, or I think there's just a blah factor. I don't know what it is, and I don't know what it does for me, and so I'm going to tell the, the pollster I don't have a high opinion of it. It doesn't appear to me this health care reform bill the way it was done to be something that a lot of voters are going to be drawing a line in the sand on the way they would over, say, an attempt to repeal Social Security. Yet benefits uh, in American policy are rarely repealed. <laughs> Mandates have been. Prohibition is probably the best example, of course, of a repeal. It was a repeal of a constitutional amendment. It took a decade to do, but there was uh, support for it eventually. That the, the feeling that the government had overreached into a, a big part of American life, and it was actually impacting uh, life in, in various places, and certainly impacting the ability of localities to collect taxes, and that was one of the bigger factors in in the the drive for the repeal during a Depression when governments didn't have any funds. In terms of the 2010 political situation, I think a total repeal of health care is unlikely uh, because the Republicans have the House but not the Senate. And President Obama will likely veto any repeal that comes to his desk. This is his most important achievement. He's not going to allow a repeal to go through. He will veto a repeal bill. Uh, It's his legacy at stake. So even if uh, the Republican House passes a repeal, which they might do because they're looking to show their supporters that they've achieved something from the 2010 elections, even if they're able to convince enough, say, Democratic moderates in the Senate to get a repeal bill passed, goes to the president, he vetoes it, there are not the votes in Congress for an override. Now, individual parts of the health care reform legislation perhaps could. For instance, if there was a bill to eliminate the mandate on Americans that they must buy health insurance, well, you know, that's something where. I couldn't tell you for sure that uh, you couldn't get that through Congress. And I couldn't tell you for sure that even uh, if it was vetoed, just a bill repealing that mandate alone, that there might not be the votes to override, especially if there's a political atmosphere to do so. So this is going to be an interesting game going forward. And I think you'll see a couple of ways it could play out. One is that there'll be an absolute showdown on this issue. The Republicans will try to repeal the whole thing. President Obama will veto. And then we're going to see how that shakes out. Either people start loving the health care reform bill because it's under attack, or they don't love it at all, and they'll see this is a power grab on the part of the Obama administration. We'll be interested to see how that plays out. But there is another avenue, and one that you may see based on how the midterm went what the current attitude of the president is, and his desire, of course, to be reelected, and the 94 to 96 example we talked about in the last cast, where there is this: hey, if you sort of cooperate and maybe take some of the issues the other side, you can you can win. Uh, there's a little bit of fighting the last war, but it's probably on many minds in the White House right now. You may see him offer to tweak the bill a bit. There's already one provision involving the use of prepaid tax-free healthcare accounts. Uh right now if you go to use a prescription and you use try to use your prepaid funds as as part of that, your healthcare savings account, they're going to uh require a, pr- a prescription even for OTC drugs. So that's something that he's already expressed a, a desire to repeal on from his own healthcare reform bill. Now, you might see some more offers to tweak like that. That will lead to some interesting politics. How does that go in the Senate? And then, if he tweaks it enough, does the legislation then become more popular and has more support? Does he avert a total repeal? All of these, uh, you know, politics will be interesting to watch. Uh, here's another consideration, though. When we talk about repealing the health care bill, you know, and I know that there aren't the votes here to repeal this or a uh, complete uh, and to override president obama's veto so then what the republican argument would obviously be is that we're going to wait for the next presidency and we're going to get our guy in there as president had some comments from mitch mcconnell there uh, to to that effect that's great but one thing i'd point out again it comes from looking at some of these issues a little bit wider view of history two years ago we were talking about something different two years from now we'll be talking about new issues Will the drive for repeal of health care last that, will the energy to do it last those two years? Will by 2011, by the end of 2011, by 2012, that there'll be new issues that we don't even know about right now that'll happen in two years, over two years, and that's what we'll be talking about then. So all of those things play into your question about repeal. Okay, a little bit related to that. Salvatore Rossignolo, regarding the health care bill, We have become a society of makers or takers. The bill has wonderful provisions in it, like being able to be denied coverage for pre-existing condition, the ban on that that everyone rallies around, and illegal, unconstitutional parts like the mandate. As citizens, we can choose not to drive a car and therefore not be forced to buy auto insurance, but we cannot be forced to buy health insurance as a condition of ownership. Bruce, long story short, taking the bad stuff out and keeping the good stuff in will be impossible, because anybody with two brain cells will know that they'll wait to buy in medical insurance until they get sick, and the company can't do anything about it. No health insurance company will continue to offer coverage under these circumstances. I cannot believe the president and his advisors did not think through the implications of this bill going to Congress and the idea of forcing individuals to buy health insurance. I'm starting to believe that President Obama used this legislation to bring about the collapse of the health care insurance industry and thus single payer. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but believing anything less is believing that our University of Chicago law professor, Harvard Law Review president, was blindsided by the constitutional implications of a law. Well, Salvatore... I don't think that President Obama was blindsided to, to address that first and then talk a little bit about your question. Um, as far as his advisors, you know, being blindsided or, or his advisors being involved in healthcare at all, if you believe Jonathan Alter's book, which I've been reading recently, is why I'm talking about it so much, The Promise. Uh, and I think, you know, you'll see more of these type of accounts as more in the Obama administration gets released, but Alter kind of had an in with the administration. Most of Obama's advisors, most notably Rahm Emanuel, who's now out of the White House, but Axelrod and uh, or- Orzag told him to put health care aside until the unemployment numbers went down, until the economy got better. President Obama almost alone among his advisors, felt that, A, health care was linked to the economy and deficit, so he had to address it. B, he had promised to do it during the campaign, so he had to do it. C, he needed a major accomplishment, the past something attitude, so he had to do it. And D, it would never get done if not done in the first year of his presidency, which is possibly historically accurate. He wanted it done in 2009. The Senate dithering you know, brought it about in 2010. That aside, uh, his advisors did weigh in. He went against his advisors, but I still don't think President Obama was blindsided. Uh, The drafters of this legislation were actually very clever on that constitutional issue. I did a podcast about the constitutionality of health care, which is in the archive. Uh, They made this mandate A tax instead of really a mandate. In political discussion, you and I talk about it as a mandate because essentially it is. You either have to have health insurance, have it through your employer, or you have to pay a tax. I would predict a tax will pass constitutional muster because, you know, Congress's right to tax has been well established. I don't even think, for instance, a Scalia would overturn this health care bill. I mean, I could be proven wrong. But uh, I think it's been drafted in that way so that, yes, you know, nothing should force you as an individual to take any action just to live in the United States of America, right? Just like you said, to drive a car, you have to have uh, auto insurance, and that's fine because you chose to drive the car. And we could make arguments, and I'm sure people do all the time, about some people have to drive to work, there's no way to work without driving, and in effect, in they're being forced to drive car insurance. But it's still a voluntary action. In most states, driving is a privilege, not a right. Here, as you point out, just to live, you have to have health insurance. Well, what the government's essentially saying is, you know, we're not going to come and lock you up in prison, but we are going to tax you. And taxing is something that does occur to us just for a living, right? Every human being, you know, has to, has to be taxed or at least show some reason why uh, they would not be. The mandate's troubling. I've I've never been a big fan of the mandate idea in this legislation. It's confusing. It's awkward. The whole bill's awkward. But I'd also say this. It is the opposite of any kind of single-payer plan. It's the only lever to do a universal coverage to get everybody health care insurance through the free market system. And that lever is... Offering the insurance companies, those representatives of the free market, more members in exchange for taking on unhealthy members. Will insurance companies collapse? No, I don't think so. I mean, some yes might wait to get sick. Others will just simply you know want health insurance. Uh, employer employers provide the bulk of the revenue to insurance companies. Uh, Insurance companies through their organization, America's Health Plan, were very involved in the crafting of the legislation. And they were supporters of this mandate idea because they want the new members. I would also make this point. At least the concept that President Obama was going to come into office and institute a health care plan was well known and promised from the primaries on. You knew you were going to get a president who supported universal health care, and you were going to get some kind of health care plan. It is true that prior to the election, President Obama didn't exactly say, I'm going to do a mandate, and I'm going to mandate that every individual buy health insurance. But he did have health care as one of the things he was going to get done as president. And 53% of the people in the popular vote, and much more in the electoral college, voted for this president with everything that he promised. So in effect, you could say, just as the Republicans in 2010 have a mandate to go to that House and do what they have to do, President Obama had a mandate in 2008 and acted accordingly. Many of the provisions in the health care bill are not the result of Obama's planning. I think for that reason, the, the use of the term Obamacare is more of a political you know, insult and not really accurate. It's really kind of the Democratic blue dog Congress slash Obamacare, if you, but I guess that doesn't sound as nice. President Obama felt strongly that he should let Congress craft it, because if they craft it, they'll pass it. They'll feel they own it and want to pass it. That may have been, with hindsight, a mistake, since he didn't get a bill until the second year of his presidency, when there was a lot of opposition to it. And I still don't think that this triad of mandate- ban on pre-existing coverage and subsidies for the poor is the best way to do health care in America. I think it'll it'll take a while to turn this health care reform into anything that's meaningful. And in the meantime, you know, I think there's, until you get costs under control in that health care system, we're, we're going to have trouble. I would have liked to see a different approach than anything that was discussed during that debate. For instance, the federal government picking up cancer costs, perhaps reducing premiums for all of us that way by taking out one of the biggest health care expenses, Uh, perhaps allowing individuals who were 55 and older going on Medicare if they buy in and pay to get on, those individuals being more likely not to have health insurance, not to be able to uh, continue in jobs, or not to be able to get a new job with benefits when they get fired from one. So all these reasons to do things like that, but none of them were universal healthcare plans. Michelle Minton writes, Bruce, I've generally enjoyed your podcast over the last year, and I'd love to hear from you uh, doing a show covering the history and regulatory authority of federal executive departments in relation to two hot topics today, the FDA and its ban on alcoholic energy drinks and the TSA with its recent enhanced uh, pat down and scanner issues. Good question, Michelle. Thank you for listening. Uh, It starts, in a way, with a debate that goes back to the early days of Republic, and a debate that was solved by the first president. Did departments work for Congress or the president? Who's actually in control of administration? Congress funded them, but the president was allowed to ask any question, inquire of any federal department or officer, Anything you wanted, that's in the Constitution. So if Congress is funding these departments, and when the federal government started, incidentally, it was essentially George Washington and 500 employees of the Treasury, most of which were going to go out there and collect taxes, reporting under uh, Alexander Hamilton, the Treasury Secretary, and about 22 employees of everything else. So there wasn't a large federal government, but there was a federal government there so who was in charge did congress run alexander hamilton the treasury secretary because they provided his budget or did the president it was settled in a sense by washington and he had the authority to do it he just simply started commanding these departments sure they had to present what they were doing to congress sure they had to get funding from congress But day-to-day running, that was Washington's job, and he met routinely with his cabinet, which at the time was Alexander Hamilton, Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, Thomas Jefferson, Secretary of State, and eventually Edmund Randolph, the Attorney General. They worked for him. The executive departments, in effect, are an extension of the executive. So... Just as the Treasury Department and all of those tax collectors going out throughout the country, collecting excise taxes, we representatives of Washington, the FDA, and the Transportation Security Administration today are among our representatives of President Obama, an extension of the president. We decided that there would be one president, single executive, and these are extensions of him. It all started in 1790. To understand the Food and Drug Administration, I think it comes out of two things. One is a long history of what had been American healthcare, and that is really patent medicine. And the second is the progressive movement at the turn of the century. So medicine in America, really even going from colonial days, going back to the turn of the century... It's principally medicine. It's principally drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals. And there was was a great amount of money to be made marketing these patent medicines. The funny thing about them is most of them weren't patented. Only a few of them actually had patents. But people would go and promote their brands. There were sometimes whole newspapers that would start up, almanacs, that would start up financed by the advertisements, for patent medicine. Sometimes the companies that owned the patent medicine would be the ones that were funding the newspaper as well, just kind of a giveaway to help them sell more medicine where the real profit was being made. So it was a big business, everything from colored water to baking soda to actual snake oil, that's where the term snake oil merchants came from. It was a very popular treatment for a while there, was sold and it was a big business. In terms of the food supply, concern about the food supply, reached a high when upton sinclair's the jungle was published about the meatpacking plants in chicago and some of the horror stories on how long the, the meat was left you know rotting and then still sold and packaged and sold and colored or what have you the conditions in some of these meatpacking plants and uh one of the stories of uh the publication of this book is that the publisher actually sent a lawyer out to the meatpacking plants in Chicago to verify if anything that Upton Sinclair said was true. They didn't want to get sued for slander or the like. And when the lawyer from the publisher came back, he said actually that uh, Sinclair had lowballed the situation. It was actually much worse than even his book had presented. So Sinclair wasn't the only muckraking journalist out there, but he was one of uh, many of journalists that were starting to talk about the the food supply, and that we had to do better in controlling it. They looked to the federal government. This was a time when there were a lot of progressives in the federal government. In the White House was Theodore Roosevelt, who was sympathetic to this. And in 1906, the Congress passed the Food and Drug Act, which um, in fact created the FDA. So right back there all the way in 1906 is where you get the answer to your question about the history of a federal government agency that can tell us not to have alcohol and caffeine drinks. Now I don't. In terms of them regulating drugs, though, initially when the FDA tried to get involved in in regulating some of the patent medicines or pharmaceuticals that were out there, courts rejected that they had the authority to do so. Even in 1912, the Congress tried to extend the authority of the FDA so that they could actually review pharmaceuticals. Courts were still siding with the uh, pharmaceutical companies. It was in 1938 when a drug company poisoned a hundred people with a drug called diethanol glycine, or DEG. This turned out to be poisonous. What happened? Because even in the days before the FDA, it wasn't like companies just made whatever they wanted. They obviously were, even in a free market system, they were concerned about killing people because they they, uh, wouldn't have any customers, uh, you know, after that. So Generally, uh, you would have chemists in the company and also you would conduct animal testing, uh, even without the FDA pushing you to do it. Well, this manufacturer skipped the animal testing. They did have a chemist on staff and the chemists simply didn't know that DEG was poisonous. So after that, and there was tremendous outrage over this, and all they were able to ever do to the company was give them a minor fine never really a fine for anything they 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 did wrong the fda was given uh, new powers by the new deal congress and given the authority to review drugs before they were made and now you have the uh, fda intensely involved in the in the making of drugs going into the 80s and 90s at the behest partially of drug companies of course but also aids activists and cancer activists who were seeing new drugs that were taking a long time to get out into market. Uh, particularly true of AIDS, where people weren't living long enough, and the AZT, for instance, uh, was um, took a long time to get to market. Because of that, you saw a fast-track process for certain drugs, therefore it's an orphan drug. So, um, you know, it's not coming from a previous treatment. It's a new drug for something that there's no cure for. The FDA gets those out a little bit quicker federal government is no longer 522 people. It's a vast organization and things like the TSA, now under the Department of Homeland Security, previously a very small agency, and, you know, prior to 9-11. The vast federal government, it all reports to the president, but it's funded or not funded by Congress. You know, so if the question is why does the federal government have the right to tell me I can't drink like a, you know, a caffeinated alcoholic beverage, Or the federal government, you know, forcing me to go through a pat-down scanner. Complexity of modern life. You had here a drug manufacturer that's selling things now, not just in one area where a state could regulate them, but selling things all over the country. Federal law supersedes. And federal law, the federal government has regulatory rights where there's interstate commerce. These are just some of the questions I have. I got so many questions from listeners. I'm going to try to a- address many of them coming up. I want to thank you for listening. Facebook site is there. The archive 14.99 at myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can get all the uh, most of the episodes going back to 2006. And if you like the program, tell somebody about it. Preferably, tell iTunes in the comment section. That really helps when people see the comments to know that, hey, this isn't just some guy with a show with a funny name. It's actually interesting to people that like history and politics. And, you know, certainly appreciate all that. And I want to thank you for listening.